0: Um, We left off introducing Josiah, uh, the results of this survival from um, the Assyrian menace that came down, number 701 BCE. Hezekiah takes this surrender letter, he goes in, uh, he prays to God, and uh, miraculously the soldiers die and or retreat. And Jerusalem, that's the event that really (coughs) confirms that promise that God made to David that they're all counting on, right? So that this event, when they overcame Assyria, survived against Assyria, uh, means that Jerusalem is now really going to enter into the mythological realm. Again, not mythological meaning untrue, mythological meaning they're gonna tell all kinds of stories about Jerusalem, and how it's inviolable, and can't be destroyed, and God really did make this promise, and he is gonna protect the city forever. 100 years, about 100 years later, Josiah comes along when he's eight years old, we, we already read this last, uh, last time, 2 Kings 22, He's eight years old, right? And he comes to the throne. Uh, and we talked about how one of the things that he did was, because he's young, he's idealistic, and he says, uh, and again, when you're eight years old, the court <laughs> people around you are actually running things, okay? So the people around Josiah are running things. And he come back, and they discover a scroll. Now, the reason I did this last week is most scholars would argue, most critical scholars would argue, that they didn't really find the scroll, because finding the scroll implies that the law, Deuteronomy, you know, the, the Torah, these things, were written long ago, Ten Commandments, you know, but as we're going to see at the by the end of today, most scholars would think that Deuteronomy, if it wasn't written after, either during the exile or after the exile, uh, was at least redacted, maybe twice redacted during the exile. The reason being is, is that, as we talked about, in the late 7th century there was this boom of literacy. All of a sudden everybody was writing and reading, which kind of set the foundation for a religion based on a book, based on laws, as opposed to based on a king who gave royal decrees. They went from a, a, a religion and a tradition of orality, where you tell traditions to one another, to literacy, to written traditions. Okay. When you live in a, not illiterate, but an a-literate society, it's not a stigma not to be able to read. Today, if you can't read, people go, oh, he's illiterate, it's it's a bad thing. But in a a non-literate society, who cares if you can't read? I'll I'll get my slave or my scribe to read for me. I don't need to go sit in school and learn how to make all those letters and learn properly. I I can just, this is Noam Chomsky at MIT, right? Uh, The argument is that human beings can innately communicate verbally, even if they can't write And and that's kind of a foreign concept to us. But if you know any people, or grew up like I did, with people who cannot read and write, they can still speak (laughs) and communicate. Their English isn't proper, but they can still communicate. They just can't write and read. Okay, so all that is to say, why do you need to write down your religious beliefs if you live in an oral society and there's no threat to your religious beliefs? It's when you're under attack and when you think you're gonna die and you have the capacity to read and write, that you say, you know what, we got to write down what we believe. This is how I argue, this is how scholars argue, uh, and why we can argue, that Deuteronomy, other books of the Torah, could have been written in exile, which we we're about to talk about, or post-exile. It doesn't mean they're not historical. It doesn't mean that they are historical, but it doesn't mean they're not historical. Um, and, it, and it doesn't mean that they, they didn't happen. It doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't believe it, or that, you know, that it's not true. It just mainly means that it was written down later. Understood? Okay? So when this uh, episode comes along, where he says he found the book of the most scholars believe, based on other evidence, that what they were doing was beginning the process of pulling together the religious beliefs that would become uh, books like Deuteronomy, that would become the, the law, the, the Jewish, what would become after they became full on Jews, and we can have that discussion. When when did you you start calling people Jewish? When they're Israelites or or later on? Most scholars would argue uh, after the Persian period. Second Temple Judaism is when you begin to see Judaism as a religion. Why? It's a religion based on the book, based upon a set of laws, that all of a sudden begin to get mentioned under the reign of Josiah. So literacy, the transition to literacy, and the reign of Josiah, this idea that, look, I found a book. It's got laws in it. And we should do what those laws say, right? That's when we can, I think we can begin to talk about a Jewish religion, what do we know today with Judaism. Uh, the high priest Hokiah has given me a scroll. And then what's on that scroll? That's the question. Well, remember Hezekiah? Remember Hezekiah we talked about, and he had these religious reforms <coughs> in 2 Kings 18? He cut down the shrines, he cut down the pillars, he cut down the sacred posts, he cut down even the Nehushtan, even the bronze snake that Moses made, Moses himself, right? The patriarch, pardon me, uh, yes, that Moses had made. Abraham, Moses, and the patriarch. These guys did things. Um, and all of a sudden, Hezekiah said, well, chop that down. Why? He's trying to centralize religion in Jerusalem. Why? To bring him out of orthodoxy. He was trying to make one set of beliefs with one place to worship. And apparently, it didn't take so Josiah came along and found this scroll in, in the temple. because The temple had fallen into complete disrepair. So Josiah orders, we need, to, we need to repair the temple. And in the temple they found this copy of the, the scroll. And it says what? Don't set up shrines. Don't set up pillars. Don't set up these high places. Right? Worship only in Jerusalem. And so now he's got biblical or authoritative evidence to say, this is how we're going to do it. And since Hezekiah, the temple had fallen into disrepair. They had set up new posts and new pillars. So Josiah is going to bring about yet another religious reform. By the way, why do all these uh, pillar figurines of Asherah, why are they all holding their breasts? You ever notice this? Yeah, it's a a symbol of fertility. Right? Human mammals, women, right, are, as I'm told by my my, uh, comparative animal physiology, Colleagues are the only mammals whose breasts don't recede after childbirth. Right? If you have a cat or a dog and it gets pregnant, all of a sudden you see breasts on the animal, and then after the the babies are born, the breasts go away. But for some reason on human women, um, they're there. Right? And they, in comparative animal evolutionary theorists, and these guys say that it's because men, human men, uh, sexually selective the fed right, why do women get breast implants? Well, who, why, why? I mean, better for self-esteem, better, why, 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 why? It's about sexual selection. It's something, it's like putting on makeup or putting on clothes or taking a bath. It's things that we do to, men do it too, not so much with the breast implants, but right? it's <laughs> uh, things that we do to try to make ourselves more attractive and, and to show off our fertility so that we can get other people to make with us, so we can have you know, fulfilling lives and children and all this stuff. That's how the story ends. Okay, so breasts were, Why am I talking about? Breasts were symbols of fertility in the ancient world, basically. Uh, and, and by the way, this whole modern notion of the really skinny woman was completely foreign. A really skinny woman wasn't eating, or she was poor. She couldn't afford food, right? In the ancient world, even down through the Greek period, you look at classical art. Women were big, big round hips, big breasts, big big. That was the fertile woman. That was what everybody wanted. Not the yes, is Kate Moss still a model today? Not these little skinny waifs, right? Um, big, big. Uh, Sir people would have loved in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Anyways, uh, okay. that's why you always see them holding their breasts. It's not that they're obsessed with sex, although that's how you did worship in some of these fertility cults is by having sex with a temple prostitute. Um, but it's a symbol of fertility. Okay. Josiah, and the reform that is described that uh, Josiah was bringing about, um, is very similar to Hezekiah's, and I'm just going to highlight some of the yellow stuff here. Okay? So what did Hezekiah? Pardon, what did Josiah do? right? All of the objects made for Baal and Asherah, right? He took them down. He burned them outside Jerusalem. He suppressed the idolatrous priests. Not only did he burn down these idols, um, but he um, suppressed or killed the priests that were in charge of the cults where these things were. Keep in mind, many scholars have noted that there is a transition in the understanding of these shrines. During Hezekiah's reign, during Hezekiah's reign, these idols, if you will, were understood to be idols of Yahweh, or or his wife, Asherah. At least that's what the evidence shows us. That is, they weren't considered necessarily foreign gods, although some of them were. But it was possible to worship the Hebrew god uh, using idols. So they, they wouldn't be as idolatrous as Josiah describes it. It's just another way to worship the Hebrew god so you can worship without idols like the, like the text says to do but some people say, eh, I'll just make an idol but I'm still worshiping the same god Okay, with the high places and the trees. Whereas when you get to Josiah and his reform it's very clear that any idol must be a foreign god. That is the concept of, of idolatry has transitioned from this notion of an alternative way to worship the Hebrew god Hashem, the Tetra um, to it has to be a foreign god because nobody in their right mind would create an idol for Yahweh. So idolatry becomes um, something that's done worship in either in worship of Baal, Asherah, and of Yahweh to only worship of foreign of foreign gods, which is a no-no. So no idols and no worship of foreign gods uh, under Josiah. Yes. Did you argue that the is an idol. Yeah, you could. Right? It's an icon. People what do they call it? An icon. Right? I would argue that the, uh, the the Ark of the Covenant. Ark ARK of the Covenant. Not the Ark of the Covenant. Not the half-circle. ARK of the Covenant. Also Noah's Ark. ARK. ARC, I think, is Electrical arc and also uh, Half-Circle. Anyways. Um, yeah, could you argue that the that the Ark of the Covenant is an item? They marched it around. That, that's with the presence of God, they worshipped it. They built a temple for it. And could. Which is why I said at the end of last lecture, I think that what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, everybody wants to know. They're always asking to appear on uh, documentaries saying, what do you think happened to the Ark of the Covenant? I think it actually went away during one of these reforms. Either Hezekiah's reform or Josiah's reform. Because if he's going around cutting down, especially Hezekiah's reform, if he is going around cutting down objects of worship to God, because, not that they're to some other god, they're, they're to god, but they're objects of worship, which are forbidden, then the Ark of the Covenant would have been a scandal, would it not? not? Right? Which is also why I think it really existed, because it's problematic. Right, a, a religion that says no graven images, no idols, shouldn't be following around a graven image. So because it was problematic, I think it was actually historical. The question is, what happened to it? Most people will say that it got carried off uh, in the exile to Babylon. Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a second. They just carried it off as one of the objects. But I think that would have gotten mentioned, because the Ark of the Covenant always got mentioned when it was captured. Remember the story about it from the beginning of, oh, what book is it, 1 Samuel? Uh, when the Ark of the Covenant is captured, and Eli hears about the, ca- the death of his sons. He goes, ah, okay, that sucks, my son's dying. Oh, by the way, they captured the Ark of the Covenant as well. And he fell over backwards and died. Anytime the Ark of the Covenant was captured, they made sure to mention it. And yet, it's never mentioned in this list of treasure that's taken off by Babylon. I would argue it's because it's already gone. It should be, again, it's a a tougher argument to make, it should be listed among these objects here, but later redactors, remember I mentioned that in Deuteronomy, later in the exile, they went through and cleaned up some of the things they didn't like uh, before it became canon. I think they just omitted the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was one of the things that was eliminated. Again, it's speculation, but that's what I think went on. Why? Why is that okay? Because all of the holiness, remember we were talking about Eliada and sacred space and sacred objects? All of the holiness that was attributed, all the veneration that was given to the Ark of the Covenant, transferred to what? When they went from being a nomadic people to a stationary people with their own land, they built a what? Temple. The Ark of the Covenant goes in the temple, and now the temple becomes the place where God is worshipped. And you don't need the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about name theology later today. Name theology is the other bit of evidence that we can show uh, why we why we think this is what right. happened. Okay, we had a question here. Yeah, I was wondering why don't we think that they mentioned the, like, the, like, the destruction of the Ark of the Covenant for Hezekiah? I think I think it was originally in the list. Remember we have this list of things that Hezekiah did? Yeah. I think it was actually originally in this list. But later on They had another problem with how could we show Hezekiah, good king Hezekiah, melting down the Ark of the Covenant? So what they do is they just erase any mention of it at all. So the Ark of the Covenant just disappears, which sets the foundation for all kinds of conspiracy theories about what happened to it. Is it in Ethiopia today? Is it buried? Is it in a box in some museum that Indiana Jones can't get to anymore? (laughs) Uh, Yes, people? Is there an original set of the Hebrew scriptures that haven't been altered that? Yeah, that's a great question. The question is, is there an original set of the Hebrew scriptures that haven't been altered? I would say no. because keep in mind, the Hebrew scriptures are a collection of books. Not only a collection of books, but a collection of versions of books. Copy and copy and copy and copy. Um, this is a whole other lecture and a whole other class, but if you take uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls class offered here, um, the reason the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important is the Bible, even after it was canonized, underwent changes. Remember the Masoretes. Remember these ma- these guys, these editors that went through and added vowels and changed words? Remember when we talked about Kareh and Ketiv, that which is written, but that which is said, right? They went under they another thousand years of these changes, so that the Hebrew Bible text that we have today has undergone a lot of changes. Well, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that gave us copies of every book of the Bible except Esther, Right? um a thousand years earlier than what we had. And sure enough, there were changes between the text that we have today and what the Dead Sea Scrolls say. So it's the further evidence that the Bible has been changed over, you know, as as, as late as very very recent, a couple hundred years. Yeah. I thought that the Dead Sea Scrolls had like several versions of each they did. book. So like not only did they have versions that differ from the Masoretic text, MT, M M-M M is in Michael, MT is kind of the abbreviation for the modern Hebrew text and by today. Uh, not only did they have different versions from what we have today, but the multiple copies that they had are often differed from one another, which is evidence that different groups of Jews had different versions of biblical books. And so it was up to these councils uh, to determine which version was correct and then which books go in the Bible. It's a whole other lecture, a whole other class. But it's this concept is a great book by a great professor named William Schneedelin. Uh, who actually is, This is his course, right? I'm lecturing his course uh, called "How the Bible Became a Book," and it goes through every detail of how the Old Testament, how the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, <coughs> became a book from an oral tradition to a book. And it's, a, I think, it's a, a very good read, full of footnotes. So if you're writing a, a paper, it works. But it's also a, a very easy book to read. All the archaeological evidence, and it goes through this very, this very issue. Schieden, S-C-H-N-I-E-D-E-W-I-N-D. You'll have to check the video for my uh, response. <laughs> he's he's uh, over in Near Eastern and He was my doctoral advisor. That's why I'm always joking about what a great professor is, even though like, he can't give me a bad grade. <laughs> okay, so Josiah comes in and does everything that Hezekiah had done and more, right? He even tore down the cubicle of the male prostitutes. How do you... Worship a fertility god. You go into the temple and you have sex with uh, either male or female uh, priests, right? Um, a lot of this was—it's uh, not called replication—but you would act out what you want to happen. So, if you want fertility, rain, and crops that grow, you have to. How do you? How you have to act out what you want? So you go to the temple and you, be fertile. You make it rain, yeah, with, <laughs> 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 with the temple project. I'm not going to take credit for it. Here in the peanut gallery, um, yeah, you, you you have sex, and that's how you worship these fertility gods. And then the idea is, whatever the gods see you doing, um, that's what they'll do for you. Okay. By the way, that's not just pagan religions. There are a couple of stories, and I'm thinking of stories of um, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Right? Jacob. Um, There's a great story about how he ripped off his Uncle Laban um, with his sheep. And one of the ways he did it was one of these, whatever this this fairy tale, but it's what they believed, that whatever you saw while you were having sex, or animals, whatever they saw, that's what would come out. So if you were looking at at males, your baby would be a male. If you were looking or thinking about females, your baby would be a female. In this particular story in the Hebrew Bible, uh, he made a deal with his uncle uh, any sheep that are spotted you can keep, any sheep that are pure I'll keep and so what he did was he took the sheep over to a bunch of trees and put black and white pitch all over the thing and then made the, made the sheep graze there and mate there and all they saw was black and white and according to the story all the sheep came up uh, speckled that's not how uh, genetics works by the way <laughs> but that's how the story says. so this wasn't just a, a, a pagan foreign Canaanite tradition, some of this tradition made it into the Hebrew Bible as well. Okay, back to here. Um, uh, Sex with prostitutes, let's see. Um, Shrines from the gates, he defiled, he cut down all this stuff. Basically, he cut down anything that wasn't the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, this is how, this is where we're going to worship. Okay? Um, So we've talked about the finding of the book of the law. In 2 Kings, it talks about a public reading, and now everybody has to obey the, the book of the law or risk death. Right? You can only worship in Jerusalem, I just said that, and you can only worship the Hebrew God. Okay? So those are the new rules of the Josianic reform. Again, it's very similar to what we have in modern Judaism. This is why most scholars will say that you can't talk about Judaism or Jews as a religion at least, or as a people of a particular religion, until basically Josiah and the Exile. And then we've already seen that our, uh, the Temple in Arad um, may have been destroyed during Hezekiah's uh, reform. Or it may have been conquered by the Assyrians, but okay, it's one of these possibilities. Right, I'm going to move on. Everybody have this? We've talked about the religion of a book. It's a big deal. It sets the foundation for what would become Judaism, a religion of the book. And Christianity, which even though it was based upon a person, Jesus, a lot of what we know today as modern Christianity is based upon a canon of scripture called the New Testament as well as the Hebrew Bible. Uh, And the same with Islam, right? Even though it's centered on a revelation to the Prophet Muhammad, it's based upon the Quran. The text, the revelation that was given to Muhammad. So these are three faiths based on texts. And just like modern uh, democracy is based upon the things, what the Greeks were doing. This new idea of letting people vote instead of letting uh, a, a tyrant or a king, something like that, vote or decree. Um, is there other evidence for literacy around this time besides the fact that we have this Bible? Um, here you see a receipt for a contribution to the Jerusalem temple. Okay? But we have other things. We, we already saw the Hezekiah tunnel inscription. It wasn't a royal inscription. Somebody in the tunnel just got up there and wrote it. Which means that common people, laborers, can now write. Right? We see lots of seals and impressions. We saw the lamellar seals, right? Um, and again, we've talked about the textualization of religion. But let me show you another one. This is a, the, One I'm about to show you is, is one of my favorites. Okay. It's called, uh, you can say, Lachish, or Lachish, however you want to pronounce it. It's a letter. It's a letter. And there's a bunch of these letters. So we call it uh, Lachish Letter three, right? Written about 587 BCE. And it's from, well uh, here, I'll read it to you. Uh, no, I won't, because it takes too long. But basically what it is, is it's a soldier who was sent to deliver a letter. Right? And he says, get a scribe. He's told them, um, and now please listen to your servant concerning the letter which you sent to your servant. Because back in the day, the assumption was enlisted men couldn't read or write. So a scribe would take a, a message from the king or the general, would give it to the soldier, and the soldier would deliver this message, which might be about him, but since he can't read it, he doesn't know, he'd deliver it. And then the other person would read it and give the soldier his orders. There's a very good um, episode of this in the story of David and Uriah. Maybe with David and Bathsheba. Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, before David killed him or had him killed, delivered his own death message. The understanding was Uriah couldn't read or write. Okay. But the idea is this. He says, the soldier says, the heart of your servant, referring to himself, has been sick since your writing to your servant. As for what my Lord said, do you not understand? Call a scribe, as God lives. uh, Never has any man had to call a scribe for me. And also any scribe who might have come to me, truly I've never called him, nor would I give uh, anything at all for him. What's he complaining about? He's not upset about the order he was given. He's upset about, in the letter, the guy who was writing the letter said, get a scribe to read this letter to him. And he's upset. Because he, nobody taught, I can read. Why, don't make fun of me, I can read as, as God lives. I've never had a need to describe. I went to school, I can read. Which means what? Even common folk, soldiers, right, can now read. Not only can they read, but there's a growing stigma for people who can't read. So it's a fascinating piece of evidence that shows that it wasn't just royal courts and people uh, that could read, it's now reading and writing is spread throughout the land. Yes? Um, these letters written on, uh, on a On a shirt. Any time you, you have an ostracon, it's a broken piece of pottery. Paper was incredibly expensive. Kind of like ink in your printer today, right? Paper was expensive. And so what they would do is, when a pot broke, they would recycle, right? They recycled recycle a, a whole lot better than we did. So they would recycle and write on a pottery shirt, and that would be what they, they wrote on. Yes? I discovered this with the text, They're not would see much of the text. Today. Uh, yeah, usually have <laughs> to knock off the dirt and stuff, but you can. I mean, you can still see the text too. Yeah. certain paleo. Here. That's a long process. At Fowler Museum, in the archaeology, program. At Fowler Museum, you can you can take classes on how to do this if you really want to. All right. Zad Ashab Zad Just call it It's easy. Here's another letter from a place uh, not too far from Jerusalem. Uh, had a bunch of uh, ostraca, but what we also have evidence of is people understanding laws that would appear in the Bible. The, the letter is a complaint, kind of like you would write a customer service organization a complaint. And I'll read you the letter in just a second, but keep in mind that Exodus chapter twenty-two says, uh, if this is in the Bible, if you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, like as collateral for something, you must return it to him to him before the sun sets. Why? It's his only clothing. The only covering for his skin. And what else is he gonna sleep? Remember, you used to have like your your loincloth, and then you have some kind of tunic overcoat, and you just use that cape as your blanket at night tell you to sleep therefore if he cries out to me I will pay heed and cry and compassion basically there was a rule on the books in the Bible that says if a guy says hey lend me five bucks I mean, okay give me your coat for collateral because you're gonna need your coat you can't keep it overnight you have to give it back to him and then take it back from him in the morning which caused all kind of problems you know which is why a lot of people didn't like to lend or borrow things like that but there was a rule the same rule is in Amos but in the form of a complaint right? they recline reclined by every altar on garments taken in pledge. This is a critique of this practice, right? And drink in the house of their god with wine bought by fines and He's criticizing people, banks. He's basically surprised the, critis- uh, the criticism of banking and banking practices isn't a modern thing. Prophets, a long, long time ago, were critiquing banks and lenders for doing this, right? Basically, they're getting rich off things that were taken in pledge against the rules that are in the book. You know, why is that important? A lot of scholars think that this wasn't written for a long time. Well, pardon me, for a long time later. But if we actually read the text that's on this ostracon, okay, it's basically a complaint. Uh, when I finished my reading, basically, what it was to say, uh, your servant was working up north uh, a few days later, uh, before the Shabbat, before Sabbath. When your servant had finished his reaping and had stored it a few days, uh, and this is Hoshiyahu, right, the son of Shabbai, came and took your servant's garment. When I finished my reaping at the time, a few days ago, he took your servant's garment. He was supposed to give it back. Basically, I'll work for you, take my cloak, and when I give you what I'm supposed to give you, you give me the cloak back. End of transaction, right? All my companions will testify for me, everybody who is reaping. They will testify for me that this is true. I am guilty of any crime, so please return my garment. Now, why would he know to write uh, a letter complaining about somebody breaking this rule of not returning his garment that was given in pledge? Maybe because there was a rule that says you can't keep someone's garment when it's given in pledge overnight, Which which would kind of live at least some credibility to the fact that the law written in the Bible was an actual law, a long time. Ago. So here you've got some peripheral archaeological evidence that talks about laws written about this time, written down about this time, being real. it's, it's, it's an external confirmation, some archaeological confirmation of what the Bible says, at least one of the laws. Okay, let's look at another one. Um, those of you who like magic and those of you who like to wear jewelry and jewelry, and those of you uh, like sober. This is is the bling text, okay? It's called the Ketanon. Where do we know this name from? Valley They found it right there, just outside of Jerusalem. And it's a silver amulet dating to about 600 BCE, right? So pre-exile. And inscribed, among other things, inscribed on this, it's about this big, right, you would wear it around your neck, and inscribed on it are verses from Numbers 6, 24 to 26, and Deuteronomy 7. Interesting. Um, Now, some scholars who think Deuteronomy and this stuff wasn't written until much, much, much later would argue obviously this is a forgery, or obviously this dates to a later period. But the archaeological context says about 600 B.C. And it has a Bible... People do the same thing today, do they not? They buy jewelry with Bible verses on it, are they good luck charms? Maybe not, but it is some kind of symbol uh, pronouncing to others, here's what I am, here's what I believe. And only the people who know what the verse says or means or identify it, then, then you have a way to identify with people, you know I say. So what you've got is a piece of jewelry that has a, a biblical, what came to be a biblical verse on it. Which means what? At least this passage was probably as old as 600 BC, if not earlier. I'm not saying all the Bible was written in, but at least this passage was around, and we should expect that. Why? Because the passage that's being cited is a blessing. In fact, it's a classic blessing. Anybody, who reads you, anybody know this blessing? Has any, how about, for instance, does it mean, Yarechech Adonai V'eshvarecha, right? Ya'er Adonai V'navalecha, Yithnei. Yisa Adonai V'navalecha, Le'esem V'navalecha, Shalom. Anyone? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious. May the Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. Has anybody heard that? Has anybody sung that song? Okay, this is one of the oldest blessings in the Bible, written in the book of Numbers. And what we have is some evidence that this actual blessing existed at least 600 B.C.E. and that it was important. Right. Okay. By the way, this is the blessing that I say to my daughter every night. She gets to pick which, which language you uh, Every time I perform a wedding, and yes, I've done some weddings, you can do that. Um, I, I pronounce this blessing. It's, it's a good blessing to pronounce in periods of transition. If they want to pronounce it. Pronounced, if, they're, if they don't want uh, a Hebrew blessing pronounced, I don't, I don't make them do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good evidence of Scripture being important, uh, being memorized, being worn as jewelry. Uh, at least 600 BCE. Yeah. So how did we determine that from 600 Yeah. Remember we talked about archae. Uh, the question is, how do we know that this amulet comes from about 600 BCE? Remember we talked about tells and archaeological context. When things would be destroyed, they wouldn't excavate them out. They would just pack it down and build on top and build on top. Because the higher something was, the more defensible it was. Which is great for archaeologists because all we do is we start digging a square straight down. After you dig down, 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 you get this nice wall. Once you get down in the square, you're surrounded by walls of dirt, and you look at the walls and you can see different striations, different layers. And as you dig down, you find coins that say 1,800, like modern 1,700, 600, 500, 200, and they don't have coins uh, until, you know, the Persian period. But you can find coins, Roman coins, and that helps you date things, okay? Um, But you also find, we talked about using pieces of pottery. So they find styles of pottery that from known, uh, from other known loci, right? archaeological loci. And they can determine from here that it's about 600 BC. So um, when somebody says, I found a scroll, but it's not in context, or you buy something on eBay, there's no way of telling how old it is. And you can guess, but there's no way of really confirming it, because it's not in what we call a sealed locus. Do archaeologists also use carbon dating? They do use carbon dating. And the carbon dating would be consistent. The only problem with carbon dating is it has to be something made out of carbon. Uh, right, so it has to be a scroll or parchment or, or something. Or a bone. It works well with you know, bone. Okay, any questions about ketophenol? Yeah? There are no numbers. There, there, by the way, this is a great question. Uh, book, uh, chapters and verses are something that the Masoretes added, that we added, much, much, much later. The Bible didn't have n- chapter numbers and verse numbers on it. You just memorized it, right? You just learned it. Um, uh, the concept of numbers to, to delineate chapters and verses uh, is a modern thing. So it doesn't say, and now Numbers 6, 24, 24, it just has the verse on it. No, in Hebrew, even today, um, uh, in English, we name the book based upon the subject. So the book of Genesis is what we call Genesis because it talks about the origins of things. But in Hebrew, the book of Genesis is called Bereshit. Why? It's the first words of the book. You named your books after the first words. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So they named the book in the beginning. That's how you name books in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, um, let's skip this for now. I uh, us yeah, talk about it. Why a book? Why did books become important? Because writing, and more especially, alphabetic literacy, made it possible to scrutinize discourse in a different way, uh, a different kind, pardon, of way, by giving oral communication a semi-permanent form. No longer was what is good and proper, or what is legal, based upon a human, a king, or a queen, and what he or she said. You could write it down, and it could outlive you. So nowadays when a dictator dies, all of his policies, most of his policies sometimes go out the window and we start over. But once you start accepting laws, written laws, literacy, those laws can, can extend beyond the life of whatever king or, or queen was there. Which sets the foundation for not only modern religion, but also modern legal systems. Right. You hear this all the time, we are a nation of laws dictated law. The faith of Jerusalem, therefore, from this point forward, will come to follow the interpretation of texts. <clears throat> text, text, text. Textualization, we're going to talk about a lot. The concept of taking religious beliefs and writing them down. Right? Then what has to happen? Then somebody has to say, no, these are authoritative text. And what's one way that you can make something authoritative? Anyone? What's one way that you can make a text authoritative? They written by God. You can say it was written by somebody real important, or you can say it was written by God. And once you can convince people that this was the Word of God, then people, oh, it's the Word of God. And the question is, which Word of God is truly God's Word? The Hebrew Bible? The Christian New Testament? The Quran. Well, not the Quran, because I'm a Christian, and, and we don't accept that. And over here, the Muslims will say, "Well, not the New Testament, because I'm a Muslim. We accept the Quran." Right? There's different Word of God for different groups of people. That's later. We have, we have to move on. We have to move on. Yeah. That's detracts a little we'll, bit. but Why do Muslims not like Muhammad? And so we'll talk about that very thing about four lectures, about four weeks from now. Okay. <clears throat> Good question. All right. End of Jerusalem. Okay, what's about to happen? The, Divin- the Davidic dynasty, right, is going is about to. Spoiler alert: The next lecture, what I'm about to talk about is uh, Jerusalem being destroyed, despite a promise from God Himself, according to the Israelites, that a king of David would sit on the throne forever, right, and that Jerusalem would be his holy city forever. Um, and so we're going to have some problems. Basically, what's going to happen to the Davidic dynasty? it's gone. What's going to happen to the land? This land that the place that God chose, the chosen people, chosen land? What's going to happen to God's chosen people? <coughs> right? What's going to happen to the temple? <coughs> and what happens to faith when experience contradicts it? Let's talk about that with our next lecture. Give me one second.